0: Here. I'll listen something good.
1: In the tombs that ancient Egyptians prepared for their deaths, they left a record of how they lived more than 3,000 years ago. But the full meaning of many of the images remains a mystery. In almost every noble's tomb, one image stands out. The blue lotus, a type of water lily which is everywhere. But why should the lotus be associated with the dead? Late in 1999, scientists in Manchester began a series of tests to uncover the secret of the lotus. They were looking in part at the flower itself. Their tests also had another focus. An ancient Egyptian who would have encountered the Lotus. A mummy, 3,000 years old. It would turn out that the team would uncover some of the remarkable properties of the Lotus and the links between the flower, the afterlife, and sex in ancient Egypt people had looked at the, uh, the pictures in the, the TVs
2: and then predicted certain things, but we've actually got evidence now.
3: Now the speculation can be laid to one side and we can actually go after the, the hard evidence, the proof, and discoveries such as, as this are very, very important.
1: Scientologists, interested in the day-to-day life of the ancient Egyptians, have learned a large part of what they know by studying the detailed scenes recorded in the tombs. But these images are not a way of remembering the lives of the departed. They're intended to promote the two known chances of rebirth and well-being in the afterlife. After death, they believed these scenes would become real. Ancient Egyptian
3: tombs are not sterile, they are places just put the dead and leave them in a a, a pretty little tomb. Far from it, they're kind of powerhouses, they acted as generators in which everything placed in there, it wasn't done on a whim, it was done with a purpose, the equipment, the tomb scenes and so forth, they all literally scream out life, it's encouraging the dead to live, they're just exhorting the the, the mummy and live again.
1: But not all the scenes are quite what they seem. Artifacts found in tombs make clear that rebirth also involved procreation and sex. Mummies were buried with little fertility dolls to symbolize rebirth. Male mummies were often buried with artificial fallacies Many of the tomb images in which everyone is always young are thought to have a hidden sexual meaning
3: the depiction of sex was quite um not quite hidden but coded almost it's as if it's a secret coded language that was used There's still a considerable way to go before we understand all the subtle nuances because the ancient Egyptians were, if anything, rather subtle people when it came to portraying such a a volatile and potentially dangerous act as sex.
1: One of the most common images in the tombs is the blue lotus, but its significance has never been fully understood. also be a sexual symbol of some kind.
3: I am a body moving, bobbing and weaving. I know at the end of the day that tonight is tomorrow that I showed up. No matter what I'm
4: doing, I'll move, sweat, replenish, and do it again, electrolyte, instant hydration.
1: Egyptologist Lisa Manike has been investigating the Blue Lotus and its connections with both love and sex. The village of Dea el Medina near Luxor was used by the workmen who built and decorated the tombs of the pharaohs in the Valley of the Kings. But they also produced one of the most infamous of Egyptian drawings, a papyrus which added a new dimension to the symbolism of the lotus. People
3: in this village,
1: we quite gifted
3: craftsmen. One of the interesting drawings that we do have from this place is the famous *Chirin Papyrus. I think it is a very interesting piece of early pornographic literature. It's not kind of continuous story about what went on on a wild night in Derry Medina, but it shows various couples having intercourse in various fashions. There's a scene showing a woman sitting on a stool with a man facing her with a huge phallus and a lotus flower balancing on top of her head. In one of the other scenes, the woman seems to be managing quite well on her own because she's sitting on top of an inverted pot with in a pointed bottom, enjoying herself in that hole, again with a huge lotus flower on top of her head.
1: Was this connection between the lotus and sex a clue to the role of the lotus in Egyptian life? Was the lotus more than just a symbol? Lisa Vanike thinks so, and she has also tracked down another clue. kilometers upriver from Luxor, is a temple known as Edfu. Here there is evidence which suggests that the significance of the lotus is based on some undiscovered properties of the plant. Lisa Manake has tracked down a piece of text in the temple which could make sense of the lotus's central importance in Egyptian life.
3: In the temple of Horus, the walls are full of pictures showing the king offering to the god. Quite often, he would offer a lotus flower, but the accompanying texts suggest that the lotus may have had narcotic properties. The king speaks about the lotus flower to the god, and he says, when you look at its brilliance, your eyes become dynamic or imbued with dynamic properties. When you breathe in, your nostrils dilate. And I think this is a very good description of a person sniffing narcotic substance.
1: Lisa Manakay is sure that this explanation of the effect of the lotus on the gods also reveals how the Egyptians used it themselves, that it was a narcotic or a stimulant of some kind. There are hints in the tomb paintings that this is true. Here, too, the lotus is often being sniffed. Is a close association with wine. Wine goblets were often decorated to look like the lotus. And little jars of concentrate are seen being added to the wine. Might these also be derived from the lotus? Was the secret of the lotus that it was a drug which the Egyptians used in much the same way as alcohol? And if they sometimes combine them, soaking the flowers in wine? Was this what lay behind the images in the tombs and on the erotic papyrus? In Manchester they now planned to find out. If the Egyptians had been taking drugs, they hoped that this mummy would reveal the evidence. She was at the centre of a research project to establish the truth about the lotus and other mysteries of Egyptian life. The team was led by Dr. Rosalie David, keeper of Egyptology at the museum.
5: The mummy came into the Manchester Museum in 1825. Uh, she was given to the museum by two private individuals, together with two wooden coffins. And from the inscriptions on the coffins, we know that her name is Asri and that she was a singer, a chantress, in the temple at Karnak. Unfortunately, there's a great deal we don't know about the mummy. Science, we hope, will reveal the truth about the lives of the ancient Egyptians. Mm-hmm.
1: Azu's wrappings were removed by her owners in the 19th century. That made access to her skin and organs the key to the experiments, much easier for the scientific team. The The team planned to obtain a number of minute samples of uncontaminated tissue from inside ASRU's body. They would search for any signs of the Lotus or drugs of any kind which ASRU might have been taking, perhaps for recreational purposes or possibly for ritual or medicinal reasons. There's no evidence that the Egyptians used narcotics until very much later, but no one has ever examined a mummy with the range of new technologies they now plan. As well as Azru's tissue, they also needed hair samples. Since drugs slowly accumulate in hair, these can reveal drug use over a long period. However, finding hair on Azru was not a simple task, her head had been shaved, and the only hair they could find was body hair. It was Azru's role as a temple chantress which meant she had to be shaved. Removing hair, wearing wigs instead, was thought necessary for ritual purity. Her coffin explains she lived in Thebes, now known as Luxor, the religious capital of Egypt. One thousand years before Christ, near the end of the New Kingdom, she worked in the Karnak Temple. But as a temple chantress, Azru was also an ideal subject for the scientific study. Here she would have come into regular contact with the Lotus. As at Edfu, the lotus appears to have a central importance. Lotus symbols are everywhere. Records indicate that a chantress was a kind of part-time priestess, a highborn noble who would live here for weeks at a time.
3: 3,000 years ago it would have been very different. It would have been a very dark place in this inner part of the temple, full of colour, full of life. The floors would polish silver, the walls would be adorned with fine gold and lapis lazuli. Like. These jewel-like colours would be heightened by the shafts of sunlight, and the use of incense and sweet perfumes would absolutely suffuse the whole building.
1: Azaru's role, with the other chanters, was to support the priests in looking after the deities in the temple.
4: Have you lost Medicaid or chip? At healthcare.gov, four out of five customers can find a quality plan for $10 or less per month with financial help. Enroll in a plan today at healthcare.gov. Paid for by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services.
1: This included bringing offerings of the Lotus Spa In the morning, they would chant to waste the gods. three times a day they would bring food and other nourishment. They would catch the clothes with which the gods would be dressed by the priests. And throughout the day they would perform for the gods with singing and dancing.
3: Once the god was awoken in his shrine then this divine spirit had to be placated and entertained
1: Was it only the gods who were being offered the lotus? If the lotus was a stimulant, might the chantresses have used it too for their energetic dancing?
3: We do manage to get an idea of the vigor that many of these rituals would be performed with. We have back bends, back flips. You can see the long wigs hanging down beneath them. And we can see here a very, very lively scene. These these female dancers um, really shown in an energetic pose and so music and dance were performed, incense was burnt, perfumes were
1: offered. But whether the Chantresses and other ancient Egyptians were also using drugs is a mystery which remains to be resolved. In Manchester, as Asru's examination continued, the hope was that if she had been taking drugs, perhaps including the Blue Lotus, they could now begin to find out. And might she also now reveal the secret of the connection between the afterlife, the Lotus, and sex? In Manchester, the detailed examination of the mummy Asru was underway. They hoped to discover The Ancient Egyptians used drugs like opium and cannabis, and in particular, the Blue Lotus. Two members of the team, anaesthetist Dave Council and chemist Vic Garner, had now been given samples of Asru's hair and tissue to test.
2: The evidence for drug use in Ancient Egypt on the whole, this is controversial, but it would seem unlikely to me that if the ancient Egyptians had access to these powerful plant drugs,
1: they wouldn't have used them. But which plants might they have used? The team planned to take advantage of the newest technology to try to find out. ASRU samples were to be analyzed using an extremely sensitive form of mass spectroscopy. Which breaks the sample down into the molecules it contains. The test requires only a minute specimen. This is
2: the Azure hair uh, and scalp
1: sample. There's some very fine pieces of hair in there. The team looked at various types of her tissue and at individual hairs. This is a forensic test which Vigana's lab has been using to detect drugs in samples provided by the police. Azrou is the first mummy that he screened. And her samples revealed an enormous range of substances, from plant oils to henna, with some chemicals still to be identified. Um, we find lots of, of compounds in there, but
2: none of these compounds. Um, it, it is possible that we may find Compounds that may arise from plant material as well,
1: and that's what's going on in the Azru appeared free of any known narcotics, but perhaps if the blue lotus was being consumed, it actually contained something else. The time had come to take a closer look at what was really in the flower. Finding a flower to test is difficult since the plants are now very rare and hard to find, even in Egypt. One of the few places thought to have the plants, conveniently for Dave Council and Vic Garner, is Stately Water Garden in Cheshire. Here they have what botanists suspect may be the actual flower revered by the ancient Egyptians. Oh, looks
2: a bit slippery in here. Be careful, I think. The temperature light down i tell you in a It's <laughs> <laughs> very
1: fine. pleasant. It's quite warm. There's no
2: crocodiles in here, are they? Well, I'm through Thanks. So shall we take these two then,
1: Vic? Yes, but uh, don't touch the petals. If you hold the stand, Okay, okay. Twenty-five years ago, American researchers thought they had detected a form of narcotic, an alkaloid, in the lotus, but that work has never been repeated.
6: Never got to sniff a fresh one, so I think uh, this is about as fresh as it gets. So. It's
2: quite a nice fragrance, actually. It's, it's, it's very nice. What does it smell like? I suppose the interesting thing is, it's a bit like bananas, really, but it's quite pleasant. It's quite pleasant. It'd be very interested to know how long the perfume was. I smell it too, for too long, but
7: the uh, ancient Egyptians. One theory is that, that they used to get high from
6: sniffing.
2: The Blue Lotus obviously contains something in that. Um, it, it must be something more than just the appearance of the flower. It must be perfume. It may be that there's some material in there that has
1: a physiological effect. They decided to test both the chemicals found in the flower itself, and in the flower's perfume. They were looking for any substance which could give the flower the effects of a drug. What they actually found was completely unexpected. Ah, right, okay, so we've got a lot of noise,
2: and no real piece. So, on the base of that, you would say there was no material corresponding to... That particular
1: alcohol. There were no signs of any narcotic. But they made their first important discovery. Really was a phytosterols. Really. These were phytosterols, plant steroids which often have powerful medicinal effects. And then as they looked more closely, they made a breakthrough. We kept on with our analysis. We used a different type
2: of analysis and we found some material that could have an effect. This is
1: now very exciting. A different type of liquid-based mass spectroscopy was able to detect molecules too big to show up before. What they found were substances called bioflavonoids. These are chemicals which are responsible, amongst other things, for the colouring of plants but they're also known to have important uses as drugs. And in the Lotus, there were three bioflavonoids. It was the combination of all the chemicals they'd now found which might give the Lotus powerful physiological effects. Combing the literature, they looked for other plants with a similar chemical makeup. And it was the three bioflavonoids which proved the key. They are very common in the plant kingdom. They are responsible for colours and so forth, but they
2: also occur in a a lot of preparations that are used to this day, like
1: ginseng um, and also ginkgo biloba. Ginkgo biloba is a leaf extract now widely used to stimulate blood flow and improve mental alertness. And when they analysed it, the results were startling. When we compared the data, ginkgo extract
2: and the blue lotus extract we found several points of similarity there are so many points of similarity that we think that the effects of these two materials may also
1: be similar the health benefits of ginkgo have been known about for centuries so might the egyptians have used the lotus in a similar way was this why they might have soaked the flowers in wine to see an expert who could tell them exactly what effect the lotus would have had liz williamson is a pharmacognosist, a chemist able to assess the effects on the body of different substances and it was the complex combination of chemicals found in the lotus which excited her well i
3: think you've established that the chemistry uh, of the two is fairly similar it's, it's particularly in the region and it looks like the lily is even richer in these flavors than the go itself which suggests that the ancient Egyptians would use it in a similar way to that which we use Ginkgo for nowadays. And we're using Ginkgo for a lot of different conditions, but the main ones are probably for um, age, age-related deteriorations. Um, it's known as a kind of anti-aging herb, it's a free radical scavenger, and antioxidant, and it's particularly um, been shown to be useful in mild Alzheimer's and memory dysfunctions, and various conditions where like blood flow is at fault, so migraine, um, tinnitus, and so forth and even um, that would even um, involve the sort of Viagra-like effect, which would be just as important for women as men. And it, um, it looks like we have you know great similarities
1: The ability of the lotus to stimulate blood flow suddenly highlighted the missing connection between the lotus and sex.
3: And I noticed you'd found. Um, Found a couple of compounds
8: which um, are phosphodiesterase inhibitors, and, and that's the way that Viagra works. Will you be my freeze? Mike's hard freeze, all the flavor without the break freeze. That's the way that Viagra
1: works.
3: Good.
1: So the Lotus was not only a general panacea, it was also a natural form of Viagra potentially the key to both health and sexual vigour. Did this at last make sense of the different ways the lotus had been portrayed? Had the team discovered the secret of the lotus? Vic and Dave decided they had to make one last check. How could they be positive that the lily used by the ancient Egyptians really was the same plant as the one they had sampled at Stapley? would it have had the same Viagra-like effects? At Kew Gardens, in addition to their collection of modern water lilies, they also have priceless samples of the Egyptian blue lotus itself, dating back to the pharaohs. They agreed that Vic and Dave could take a sample. In the grounds, they passed one of the oldest Ginkgo biloba trees in Britain. Botanically, this seems a very long way from a water lily. Did the blue lotus of ancient Egypt really have the same properties? You can
2: see those blue lilies, they two lobes in the leaves. It's very leathery, really. Very old plants, supposedly, isn't it? Yes. Throwback. Well, you actually see these lilies in the old Nickelskins. Yes. Yeah. Can you see those in the?
1: In Q's underground archive are thousands of dried specimens collected from all over the world Egyptian specialist Nigel Hepper yeah. led them to flowers and wreaths which had come from Egyptian tombs. One uh, with the blue water lily. It's not much really right that right? uh, No. It's
2: been mm. taken off the one underneath. Mm. absolutely That's, That's from the coffee of is the second. Right.
1: Now it's the other one here in another drawer. This is the one that we probably can use. This is from Hawaii. It's excavated. Uh, it's to... When this wreath was first assembled, it would have been a colourful arrangement of blue, yellow, white, and green. Now it needed the eye of an experienced botanist to identify the blue lotus amongst the dried metals.
2: We can't use any that's actually still fixed in the wreath. Uh, there are some here, There's a of oh, and um,
1: I'll put it on We don't want to take any more necessarily. necessary, Because it's Back in the lab, they could now check if the flower of the Pharaohs really had the same chemical fingerprint as the modern plant they've tested
2: removed the, the experiment. I can get good results out of that, I would run a grammar, fat, or sample. Didn't
1: get any results that would have been very useful. And when they compared the ancient petal from Q with the modern pedal from Staplet, even they were surprised at the match. This is the trice for the the modern petal, this is the
2: trice the Q petal, the old petal 20 years old. And what we're looking at here is the profile of the phytosterols. And, and look how similar the profiles are. Two thousand years different, and yet the profiles are these of these phytosterols, these biologically important materials, are practically identical.
1: There could be little doubt that the lotus known to the ancient Egyptians would have had the same properties as the modern. But did the ancient Egyptians consume it? Was it really their Viagra? They began the hunt for the telltale lotus fingerprint in tissue obtained from Azru. To date, they've found nothing certain. But some unidentified peaks could be byproducts of the lotus. The discovery that the lotus has Viagra like properties has already given a new significance to the many images of the flowers seen in Egyptian tombs. The images of the lotus now fitted perfectly as part of a complex sexual code which Liza Malikai has been deciphering. A code which highlights the importance of sex as the key to rebirth in the afterlife. To be reborn was something that the ancient Egyptians were really
3: obsessed with. And that means that sexuality has a very large part to play in this. For instance, the persons are all in their best age, their reproductive age, and uh, often they are very scantily clad, or their garments are quite transparent. Also, scent is very important. <coughs> scent underlines sexual matters in all the civilizations, and the people here are being anointed with costly oils and perfumes, They even had lumps of the precious scent placed on top of their heads to show us and to show the other ancient Egyptians how nice they all smelled.
1: And now it seemed that the lotus, too, the most common image in the tombs, could also symbolize sex.
3: They wear lotus garlands around their necks. Some of them would have lotus flowers decorating their hair. They hold lotus flowers in their hands, the lotus flower was all over
1: the place. As a sexual symbol, the lotus could become the key to an extremely elaborate sexual code.
3: There are lots of plays of words, from word to picture and picture to word. For instance, there's a very interesting play word on the word to ejaculate, seti, and the word to pour. And incidentally, the word for scent is written with the very same three letters, S-T-I, setting. So, all this underlines the sexuality of the scene.
1: For the dead, the lotus would stimulate rebirth, just as it would be a sexual stimulant for the living.
3: It's a very interesting discovery, um, and does have significant ramifications in our understanding of why the ancient Egyptians used the lotus, the image of the lotus, so frequently. And it's interesting now to point something and so say, this, this is where it began. This is one of the means by which they made themselves happy.
1: Soaked in wine, the lotus would not provide an instant boost to the alcohol. But its long term use would boost the sexual vigour and general health of those who consumed it.
2: I think we really have got to the key of the use of Blue Lotus, and the, in my opinion, the Blue Lotus was not used as a source of narcotics. I think it was used for its beauty, for its beauty, and that it has the added advantage of giving you a, a feeling of well being when you, you drink an infusion, an alcoholic infusion. This well. Well, that's about,
1: and might the importance of the lotus have also derived from its properties as a panacea against disease? Was the truth that illness was in fact widespread in ancient Egypt? As the team continued their examination of azro might she provide some answers, a glimpse of the reality which lay behind the images of healthy young people in the (coughs) tombs. Asru was now undergoing a full medical examination. It was part of the team's attempt to establish the truth about disease in ancient Egypt. The team had already discovered a new significance for the blue lotus, a plant which they had shown would boost both health and sexual vigor. Now they hope to learn more about the general health of the people. Might the importance of the lotus in ancient Egypt be linked to the prevalence of disease? In the tombs, almost everyone is shown as young and healthy. Occasionally, musicians are shown as blind which might be explained by parasitic diseases. But in surviving medical papyri, it's usually impossible to identify the illnesses described or to establish how prevalent the diseases were. This x-ray scanner. Was the starting point not only for Azru's medical checkup, but the beginnings of a general health survey of ancient Egypt. Follow your vibe. Busy Heart sells flavor for every vibe. Together with the slides being prepared from Azru's tissue samples, they began to reveal just how misleading were the images in the tombs. First to be examined were samples from Azru's intestines. These uh, showed quite clear evidence
8: uh, of the larval forms of the worm called stromaloides within the wall of the intestine. You get the worm uh, by uh, walking the uncontaminated water or contaminated mud. The, the mud contains immature forms of the worm which are able to penetrate the skin of the feet or arms uh, And then they get into the blood vessels of the body, they get into the veins and travel uh, to the heart, where uh, they then get into the lungs. Uh, from the lungs they climb up your wingpipe to the back of your throat and then you swallow them. Uh, and in the intestines they develop into the adult forms. If Asru had this disease, we know that she did. Uh, she tended to develop diarrhea because of the irritation. And because there might well be some bleeding
1: associated with that, uh, Asru might well have been there at the time of the death. They also detected sand in Asru's lungs, and the scarring of the tissue which the sand had caused. This is a disease called sand pneumoconiosis, still found in desert populations today. Asru would have had great difficulty breathing before she died. she was distinctly uh, well. She had evidence of quite distinct
8: diseases. <coughs> so uh, the combination of them would make her weak, like, made her breathless, uh, and in fact ultimately
1: led to her demise. Through Asru they were now getting a glimpse of diseases which would have affected the general population. It gave a stark insight into the reality of life at the time, and highlighted the significance of a panacea like the lotus in the ancient Egypt. And it was just the beginning. Asru's X-rays revealed the enormous range of illnesses people suffered from. How very different life was from the idealized version in the tombs. Asru was far from young and healthy when she died.
4: In the distal joints of the fingers, there are osteoarthritic changes. These are degenerative joint disease, indicating that she's likely to be an elderly woman, certainly older than 50. Yes. This joint is ankylosed this would be uh, indicative of an infective arthritis, a septic arthritis. She wanted to played a part, So could this have been connected? Well, if that involved a lot of uh, movement of the uh, pharyngeal joints and the fingers, then one could imagine that it would do because um, osteoarthritis is related to wear and tear on joints.
1: It was clear that Asru would have been living a life of pain. As well as everything else, she had a fractured vertebra in her spine and a badly slipped disc and
4: wedged, its bulging backwards into the spinal canal. Could she have this as a result of her activities as a, a temporal dancer? Yes, that depends on how how energetic that is.
1: <laughs> and there was an important discovery: signs that azu may have had another, far more serious disease. Yeah,
4: that is. And that looks very much like the uh, bladder wall, which has calcification. And if one saw that in a contemporary x ray uh, with extensive calcification of bladder wall, one would think of um, schistosomiasis mm-hmm. as a cause for that appearance.
5: She was from an upper class background, and maybe this contributed to her fairly lengthy life uh, because she probably had the diet available, and a relatively relaxed lifestyle. Um, she would not have been engaged in housework or in servicing in house and so on. Uh, but we also know from this evidence that she had a painful life, uh, diseases that would have brought her uh, physical difficulties.
1: As they sought to understand how many of Asru's diseases might have been widespread, Probably the most significant discovery was that Azrul may have had schistosomiasis. Until recently, this parasitic disease, also called bilharzia, has been the scourge of modern Egypt. And Rosalie David now needed to establish if it was a similar plague in ancient times. certain way to detect Bilhatsia and Rosalie David decided to travel to Egypt to seek help from the experts the team who have been battling to bring the disease under control. Bilhatsia is carried by a parasite which develops in water snails. From there it infects humans who come into contact with the water attacking many organs within the body. In Egypt today Alan Fenwick advises the team which has brought the disease under control, in part by controlling the snails.
2: What this gentleman is doing is, uh, is checking the canal for snails. This canal doesn't look particularly attractive, but the point is that fresh water is, is very important. People come down to the canals to wash their clothes, the women come down to wash the dishes. Um, and come down when they're building bricks. And you know, when children are coming home from school, and it's as hot as it obviously is now, it's very attractive attractive to dive into the water.
5: In antiquity, some of the activities at least would have been similar in terms
1: of the canals. It's clear from the tomb paintings that the ancient Egyptians performed all the same activities in water, and the country has always been critically dependent on irrigation. So was Bilhatsia also widespread there? In modern times, up to 80% of the population have been infected, and it has been one of the country's major killers. Recently, dramatic reductions in the incidence of Bilhatsia in Egypt have been brought about by regular screening and treatment with modern drugs. But if the ancient Egyptians had bilharzia? They had little but the lotus for protection. So Rosalie David had brought with her to Egypt, samples from several of the Manchester mummies, including Azru, so that they could subject the mummies to the modern screening tests, now being used to detect Bilhatsia. These tests have been developed by Dr. Magid Al-Shabini, and work by detecting antibodies in the blood. So the first task was to liquefy the dry mummy samples. No one has ever found an antibody in a mummy, and most researchers have doubted that it can be done. But to Rosalie David's surprise, one of the tests came out positive. It was the first time an antibody had been detected from ancient Egypt. And it was an antibody against Bilhatsia. You
9: can see now, while we're doing the development, is that. There is supposed to be of those. Yes. And if you can see in tissue sample number three, we can see that there is some reactivity which yes. comes up a faint reactivity, but there is activity there.
5: So if this is actually the case, then these are antibodies which are two thousand years old yes, these still are still are present. Yes,
9: antibodies yes. Are extracted from the tissues and they are still live and active and
1: they are giving us such activity.
5: So this is a first. Absolutely.
1: The finding of this first active antibody from ancient Egypt was clear evidence that the people also suffered from this debilitating and lethal disease. And the finding was confirmed in Manchester when one of the team examining Asru's tissue found direct evidence of the Bilhatsia parasite which causes schistosomiasis
10: tested as for any evidence of schistosomiasis um, within bladder tissue that had been endoscoped from her. Um, And this is showing a section of that bladder tissue um, that's been stained. And as you can see, there's fluorescent staining that's actually bound to oval shapes within the bladder, which suggests that she
5: was infected with schistosomiasis. It's very exciting to find evidence of this disease in Asru. It shows that even somebody of the upper classes could fall prey to this particular disease. It's very likely that the Chantresses had to undergo some kind of ritual ablution, uh, bathing in the sacred lake. This could be the way in which she came into contact with a parasite that causes schistosomiasis.
1: If even people like Asri could get the disease, it's likely to have been common amongst the population at large.
5: If you think of a large proportion of the population suffering from this disease, they would have been functioning below power, and they created these wonderful buildings, had this marvelous civilization. That says a great deal, I think, about they
1: achieved so much even despite their, their state of life in a world where mummies are now showing that the average age of death was around 40 the lotus would be a powerful symbol of life as this picture of ancient egypt was coming together Rosalie David now travelled down to Luxor, to look again at the images in the tombs. A new layer of meaning in the tombs was gradually emerging, and the ever-present lotus was the key.
5: I think the fact we know more about uh, the lotus from our scientific studies does really give you a different view of the tomb scenes. Um, you can look beyond the pictures and the, the beauty of the scenes and it gives you an insight uh, into perhaps um, what they were hoping for in the afterlife.
1: The lotus could now be seen as a potent symbol of both rebirth and long life in a world which was actually dominated by disease.
5: Although we always, I suppose, surmised that they had illnesses It's a great contrast now to have this hard evidence and to look at this uh, in relation to these paintings which show such a different uh, idealised world. Asru probably would have been represented in this very elegant and idealised way but the physical reality is is very
1: different from this. Three thousand years after her death Asru's mummy has opened a new window A distant past. And a water lily has begun to reveal its fundamental role in Egyptian life, the key to health, sex, and rebirth. Together they've helped uncover the reality of life at the spiritual heart of Egypt at a time when the country's power was at its peak. team in Manchester planned to complete the last stages of their work with Asri. Using the images of her smile, to reconstruct what she really looked like. The reality which lay behind the images in the tombs. In full makeup and wig, rule was about to show Rosalie David her true likeness for the first time.
5: That's incredible. And she looks, I suppose, as somebody aged about, about 60. It's interesting how her upper lip hangs over the bottom because of course she has those protruding teeth, but I don't think it's it's evident in the mummy itself, but it's it's very pronounced there. In her youth, she would have been quite, uh, quite beautiful, really.
1: Through the team's work has come a clearer understanding of the Egyptians yearning for eternal youth in the next world, after a life which, even for the elite, was in fact, riven by disease. And a new appreciation of the crucial role of a flower, which is a symbol of health and regeneration, was essential for their happiness in an afterlife free of imperfections. on earth, and in their temples, tombs, and artifacts, they left behind a beautiful and detailed record of their lives, but many mysteries remain. It's becoming possible to decipher yet another vast store of information which the Egyptians left about themselves. They're dead. New scientific techniques are allowing Egyptian mummies to reveal secrets of their lost world. Scientists are now able to study the DNA of the pharaohs and are unraveling the truth about the rise and fall of one of Egypt's greatest families, the 18th dynasty, family of Tutankhamun.
11: It's a very hard thing to get ancient DNA out. And when ancient, when we actually see that on the gel, and we see the sequence and we can show that this is something that has come from 3,500 years ago, that's a very exciting time. This is
7: working, that's what's exciting. It is working, we're getting results, the DNA, Uh, readouts are showing that we can take cutting-edge scientific skills and apply them to a very interesting question. Who are these people? What are their diseases? I think this is a remarkable project.
1: Might this great family have been affected by a genetic disease? And did that bring about its sudden end? was that the real tragedy of the young king, Tutankhamun? (coughs) The search for answers began with the extraordinary discovery that occurred in Luxor in 1922 and which changed forever the way the ancient civilization of Egypt was perceived. discovery took place in the so-called Valley of the Kings. Beneath a pyramid shaped mountain, this valley was where the pharaohs of the new kingdom had been buried. Searching here for the tomb of a minor pharaoh of the 18th dynasty, Tutankhamun. Carter's hope was that Tutankhamun was so unimportant that his tomb might have escaped the robbers who over the millennia had stripped many of the tombs in the valley of their contents. His backer, Lord Carnarvon, agreed to fund one last season for Carter to search in a triangular area of ground which so far remained unexplored. had only been digging for two days in early November when an unusual find was made. A step down into the sand. It might have been nothing but that step became a flight of 16 steps. The flight of steps led to a corridor and the corridor led Howard Carter to the most astonishing find in the history of archeology. span A hoard of treasure, unlike anything which had ever been seen before. This amazing discovery focused attention for the first time on the little known Pharaoh who'd been buried here and on the fate of the dynasty that died out with him. To this day, Tutankhamun and the end of his family remain mysterious. But amongst the treasures, Howard Carter made a discovery which could now give scientists a critical new piece in the puzzle of the 18th dynasty. remarkable box contained two miniature coffins and when Carter opened the coffins he discovered two tiny mummies the mummies of two unborn children but who these children were why they died and whether their death might be linked to the end of the dynasty are questions which have never been answered Today, Tutankhamun's treasure takes up almost a quarter of the total space in the Egyptian museum in Cairo. Many of the exquisite pieces show tantalising glimpses of the life of the boy king, who came to the throne before he was ten and died at the age of eighteen. But who exactly was he, and why did his whole family die out with him? The 18th dynasty is probably the most remarkable of all the Egyptian royal families. Ruling one and a half thousand years before Christ, in what's known as the New Kingdom, they carved out much of the Egyptian Empire. Over a period of some 200 years, they used their growing wealth to leave some of the most splendid monuments ever built. What's known about them has been pieced together from engravings on tomb and temple walls proclaiming their achievements. From the great female pharaoh Hatshepsut to the warrior pharaoh Tutmosis III, these rulers were at the head of a state at the peak of its power. But with Tutankhamun, the family came abruptly to an end. No one knows why the dynasty died out. But the dynasty may have begun with a brother-sister marriage, and there has been speculation that the family had become dangerously involved, as successive pharaohs also married their sisters. Now the rulers themselves could provide the answer. The Cairo Museum is home to more than 30 of the Egyptian royal family, including many from the 18th century. Nazri Iskander, who's in charge of the mummies, has been moving them from their old boxes into new climate-controlled cases. It's provided a unique opportunity to examine the mummies, and for the first time attempt to obtain their DNA.
9: To have a tissue from more than three thousands of years is not available any day. Uh, once we are putting this in the new showcases, we are not going to touch it before 10 or 20 years.
1: Dr. Iskander hoped that the DNA of the 18th dynasty pharaohs might help resolve some of the questions which still surround the dynasty. He invited two American scientists to Cairo to help. Microbiologist Scott Woodward and archaeologist Wilfred Griggs are two of the world's leading experts in the new science of ancient DNA. They come from Brigham Young University in Utah, which specializes in understanding genealogy. Working with other Egyptian mummies, the two had already shown that it's possible to extract DNA and obtain valuable information about individuals who lived thousands of years ago. Hey there, we
5: are halfway through this Untold History of Ancient Egypt's Elite, Private Lives of the Pharaohs, All Out History um, on All Out History, Premium History Documentaries Channel. It's kind of a new one, um, but it sounds pretty great so far. Just looking at this picture of a lady. It's kind of pretty. I kind of like... Um, I would say, a, like, tan, permanent tan skin tone of this lady. Anyway, so uh, let's get back to it. Pull up disease a little bit. Is,
7: I think this is a
2: remarkable project.
1: Might this great family have been affected by a genetic disease? And did that bring about its sudden end? Was that the real tragedy of the young king, Tutankhamun? The search for answers began with the extraordinary discovery that occurred in Luxor in 1922, and which changed forever the way the ancient civilization of Egypt was perceived.
5: Up with the volume? Why is it so low? The
1: discovery took place in the so-called Valley of the Kings, <laughs> beneath a pyramid-shaped mountain. This valley was where the pharaohs of the New Kingdom had been buried. archaeologist Howard Carter have been searching here for the tomb of the minor pharaoh of the 18th dynasty Tutankhamun. Carter's hope was that Tutankhamun was so unimportant that his tomb might have escaped the robbers who over the millennia had stripped many of the tombs in the valley of their contents. His backer Lord Carnarvon agreed to fund one last season for Carter to search in a triangular area of ground which so far remained unexplored. Carter had only been digging for two days in early November when an unusual find was made. A step down into the sand. It might have been nothing. But that step became a flight of 16 steps. The flight of steps led to a corridor. And the corridor led Howard Carter to the most astonishing find in the history of archaeology. A horde of treasure unlike anything which had ever been seen before. Amazing discovery focused attention for the first time on the little known pharaoh who'd been buried here and on the fate of the dynasty that died out with him. To this day, Tutankhamun and the end of his family remain mysterious. But amongst the treasures, how Carter made a discovery which could now give scientists a critical new piece in the puzzle of the 18th dynasty. An unremarkable box contained two miniature coffins. And when Carter opened the coffins, he discovered two tiny mummies, the mummies of two unborn children. But who these children were why they died, and whether their deaths might be linked to the end of the dynasty, are questions which have never been answered. Today, Tutankhamun's treasure takes up almost a quarter of the total space in the Egyptian museum in Cairo. Many of the exquisite pieces show tantalizing glimpses of the life of the boy king who came to the throne before he was ten and died at the age of 18. But who exactly was he? And why did his whole family die out with him? The 18th dynasty is probably the most remarkable of all the Egyptian royal families. Ruling one and a half thousand years before Christ, in what's known as the New Kingdom, they carved out much of the Egyptian empire. Over a period of some 200 years, they used their growing wealth to leave some of the most splendid monuments ever built. What's known about them has been pieced together from engravings on tomb and temple walls, proclaiming their achievements. From the great female pharaoh Hatshepsut to the warrior pharaoh Tutmosis III, these rulers were at the head of the state and the peak of its power. with Tutankhamun, the family came abruptly to an end. No one knows why the dynasty died out, but the dynasty may have begun with a brother sister marriage, and there has been speculation that the family had become dangerously inbred as successive pharaohs also married their sisters. Now the rulers themselves could provide the answer. The Cairo Museum is home to more than 30 of the Egyptian royal family, including many from the 18th Dynasty. Nazarene Iskander, who's in charge of the mummies, has been moving them from their old boxes into new climate-controlled cases. It's provided a unique opportunity to examine the mummies,
9: and for the first
1: time, attempt to obtain their DNA.
9: To have a tissue from more than three thousand of years is not available any day. Uh, once we are putting this in the new showcases, we are not going to touch it before 10 or 20
1: years. Dr. Iskandar hoped that the DNA of the 18th dynasty pharaohs might help resolve some of the questions which still surround the dynasty. <laughs> we invited two American scientists to Ireland to help. Microbiologist Scott Woodward and archaeologist Wilfred Griggs are two of the world's leading experts in the new science of ancient DNA. They come from Brigham Young University in Utah, which specializes in understanding genealogy working with other Egyptian mummies, the two had already shown that it's possible to extract DNA and obtain valuable information about individuals who lived thousands of years ago.
11: There's been a lot of speculation about the genetics of the 18th dynasty. Uh, What was the level of inbreeding? How much brother-sister marriage did we really have? And did that cause a problem with the health of these individuals? Is that a reason why the 18th dynasty died out? Those are some questions that may be approachable
1: yeah. using the DNA. Much of the family, spread over some 12 generations, yeah, was still yeah. in see the standard laboratory, awaiting their new cases. But little mm-hmm. has been known for about their exact relationships. And
8: in, in, in this, uh, there is the, uh, two ladies, two queens, Hamas uh, Nefertari and Seth Kamis, the two wives,
1: uh, the first, and also here, Scott and Wilfred were hoping that if as well as the royal family, they could obtain the DNA of the fetuses found with Tutankhamun, then they could build up a complete family tree of the 18th dynasty. Uh, could this be Tutankhamun's grandfather? And we have uh, there uh, the intermediate <laughs> And who was this unidentified parasite? The team were hoping that this must be now to provide an important place to the, end of the dynasty. This shadowy figure was thought to be closely related to Tutankhamun. Some had suggested it might actually be his father. If so, it was possible that he could provide a direct glimpse of the genetic defect which might ultimately have brought down the dynasty. In a project which would last several years, Scott and Wilfred planned to recover the DNA from the mummies one by one as the recasing work proceeded. But they also wanted to track down the fetuses which they'd been told were in the care of the museum.
11: There are only a few key points in the dynasty where we feel relatively certain on the identification of a a body with a name. But Possibly one of those points lies with the fetuses that were found in the tomb of Tutankhamun.
1: The fetuses, photographed when they were first found, could have been the very last members of the family and the key to understanding its fate. However, they're not listed in the catalogues, and first they had to find them amongst the thousand objects in the museum. The miniature coffins in which the fetuses had originally been discovered were traced to a storeroom where they were awaiting restoration. These were the nested coffins as Carter had found them nearly 80 years ago, except that now both were empty. The fetuses themselves were elsewhere.
7: Many of the people we've talked to, even in uh, key positions, have not entirely been sure where the fetuses are. So it's very important for us to be able to determine certainly where they are.
1: Whilst the authorities tried to work out where the fetuses had gone to, Wilfred and Scott returned to the main task of building up a genetic profile of the 18th Dynasty pharaohs. Today it was the turn of the warrior pharaoh Tutmosis III. Known as the Egyptian Napoleon, he pushed back the borders of the Egyptian Empire when the dynasty was at its height. Now his sphinx stands guard over the Cairo Museum. Tutmosis III is from the middle of the dynasty and is one of the few royal mummies whose identity is certain. So his DNA would provide an important point of reference. If
11: we can obtain a DNA sample from Puposius III, it then ties the bottom part of the dynasty with the top part of the dynasty to use him for an anchor right in the middle of the dynasty. What we'd like to do is obtain a small tissue sample that has a high likelihood of not having been touched uh, so that it wouldn't be contaminated from any modern DNA. Probably the most important thing here is not to cause any damage so we'd like to look and see if there are any cool openings that will allow us to get to the inside so and recover to have other to a gap. Once Scott
7: can establish DNA patterns in the 18th dynasty, he can start determining whether uh, there is as much of the ingredient coefficients as people have argued. Technosis will be a very significant piece of that puzzle because everybody can tie two to as
1: We know them is. Incredibly, in Egypt it's possible to look at the faces of the pharaohs almost side by side with the monuments they constructed. Large sections of the enormous temple at Karnak in Luxor were built by Moses III more than two thousand years ago. This gateway celebrated his conquests as he expanded the Egyptian Empire from the Black Sea to the Sudan. Look
7: at these fingerprints. Uh, this is such fine material. Yeah. The swirls and the circles on the fingerprints are just remarkably detailed. Yeah, you no. Know.
1: A hundred percent all-white meat spicy chicken strip just got 110 percent
8: done. No, I see the, the left shoulder is loose. Mm-hmm, yeah. We're not doing the, the restoration. That's not going to be
11: noticeable at it all. It's going to be on the inside, away from any place that uh, anyone has ever touched. If I can reach I to 80, 80, 80,
1: 80. On some loose pieces of tissue, the process of extracting any DNA back at the laboratory could take months or even years. But these samples should begin to answer the questions about how the family members were related. Would their genes indicate that inbreeding led to the demise of this Egyptian royal dynasty? Certainly, at the end of the dynasty, marriages within the family seem to have been common. Tutankhamun is thought to have married his half sister, Ankinson Park. They were both little more than children, and much in love to judge from the gifts she gave, which were past. But they were destined never to have any other children. As the family disease. Many people have suggested that a disease was already apparent in the pharaoh thought to be their father, Akhenaten. If that's true, could he provide the key to understanding what may have sealed the fate of the 18th dynasty? In Cairo, the quest for the DNA of Tutankhamun's family continued in the hunt for a disease may have thought about the end of the dynasty.
11: So this is the uh, yes. first.
1: And at the heart of the mystery was the pharaoh thought to be Tutankhamun's father. Akhenaten. He was perhaps the most extraordinary pharaoh in Egyptian history. He's known as the heretic pharaoh. At a stroke, he's more than a thousand years of established religion. And all the well-known traditional gods like Amun-Ra and Osiris. And in an untrusted mood, he and his wife Nefertiti shifted their capital away from the modern of Modicum, so building a new city in the desert, 200 miles to the north. As time, he threw up years of tradition in the way Egyptians would represent themselves, transforming the style of Egyptian art. The scenes and figures became far more intimate, also strangely stylized, especially Akhenaten himself.
7: Akhenaten is always seen as a deformed individual. An elongated head with a long chin and a misshapen cranium. He has flared hips that are very feminine. It has been thought by many people that this is a result of inbreeding and genetic uh, mutation that has caused these kinds of changes to take place. Others think that uh, this
1: is really just a revolutionary art of. Is this just an artistic style, or did Akhenaten have a disease? This looks a bit like an inherited syndrome known as Mopat, which old, narrow, narrowed long elongated legs. Abraham Lincoln may have had the same. But did Akhenaten really look like this? Egyptologists today are not convinced. <laughs> normal
9: looking challenge in the more extreme sculptures which were in- to be seen from down below. Nowadays they're almost invariably photographed from the front. So you've got this extraordinary uh, distortion in the chin from the face and the face. If you look at that same sculpture from below, then the distortion is far less. It's still a pretty weird looking thing. But the impression is more one of power than of peculiarity. I think Akhenaten was making a point. The king is different.
1: However, others think the way Akhenaten is portrayed may well be how he actually looked. Dr. James Harris has, over many years, been studying the skulls of the royal mummies, hoping any similarities will help to sort out their relationships. The mummy of Akhenaten is not thought to survive, but that of his father, Amenhotep III, does.
6: There's great similarity between the skull of Amenhotep III and the portraiture of his son, Akhenaten. Uh, both have pointed chins, uh, large globular skulls. The face is somewhat bizarre. Uh, Of greater interest was the fact that the skull is very, very large. In fact, because the individual is very short, uh, Amunhotep III, or the mummy identified as Amunhotep III, is extremely short, less than five foot. Yet his skull is two standard deviations too large for his body.
1: So this was rather a bizarre (coughs) looking individual. If Akhenaten's father looked bizarre, then perhaps Akhenaten did too. And really did inherit a disease such as mothballs. Over the years, geneticists have speculated that some unidentified inherited disorder might also be responsible for his erratic behavior. Akhenaten's new capital, at Armana, in Middle Egypt, was built on a deserted stretch of sand beside the Nile. He defined the city boundaries with a series of decorations carved into the rock, celebrating his new capital and a new religion. Egyptologists like Joanne Fletcher think there were probably many factors influencing his behaviour.
3: We have to understand the context behind Akhenaten before we can then to any changes, as regards not only his physical condition but also his mental condition. The significance of Akhenaten's move here to the new site um, of Amarna has been interpreted in many different ways by many different Egyptologists and historians. What seems to be happening is a desire to break with the past, certainly, but the move is also a development of his religious beliefs. He basically swept away the traditional pantheon of Egyptian gods. And instituted the one god, the Aten, represented the Siddiq.
1: Akinaten's new and only god was the disk of the sun, which he called the Ardor. the lead of the Aten, Yet other scenes in the tombs emphasize that he was no benevolent religious recluse, as has been suggested in the past there are repeated images of the soldiers who were clearly part of life in the new city.
3: There is a death of the presence which can be seen in the artistic representations and also the patrol tracks of this death circle, the site of the former city. Far from being this kind of Great benefactor of his people, he might be seen by some kind of dictator on us. But speaking personally, I'd just be very wary of suggestions that Akinart was suffering from one of several physical uh, conditions.
1: It may be only through the family's genes that the question of Akhenaten's possible disease can be settled. Records indicate that Akhenaten and his chief wife, Nefertiti, had six daughters. It was the third daughter, Ankhenaten, who was destined to become the wife of Tutankhamun. She was a year or so older than him, and there's evidence that Tutankhamun was also born in Amarna, the son of Akhenaten, and a favorite secondary wife.
7: We hope that getting the DNA of these ancient people will be one way of getting at the issue of whether or not the Amarna period is really uh, the result of excessive inbreeding uh, or genetic mutation that would have been
11: passed on in the family. What made Akhenaten so different? Was it a genetic problem? was it something that we could look at that that he may have been carrying a gene for that we could could examine and see whether or not he had that gene? Um, Likewise, what about Tutankhamun? What about the fetuses? Did that gene continue on through the next two or three generations? Those are specific questions that we can look at uh, with, with the DNA.
1: But obtaining the DNA of Akhenaten, or his immediate family, is easier said than done. Later dynasties attempted to remove all traces of the heresy. One of the few bodies known to have survived, undetected in his tomb, is Tutankhamun. And of course, the two fetuses found with him. But for now, the authorities considered Tutankhamun, still in his sarcophagus, too precious to disturb, which gave the fetuses a key importance. The team suspected that some inherited metabolic disorder might have caused the still deaths, and even explained some aspects of Akhenaten's strange behavior, so the fetal DNA could establish if the family was affected, and if that might have led to the end of the dynasty. But in the years since the discovery of the tomb, the whereabouts of the foetuses has often been uncertain. It took Howard Carter ten years to clear the tomb of its contents. Every one of hundreds of items was meticulously catalogued and cleaned. All the artifacts were carefully packed on-site, and then everything was dispatched to Cairo. Box 317 with its two miniature coffins was duly noted and examined but whilst the coffins were properly cataloged the fetuses were removed from the coffins
7: when they came out of the tomb they began to move and finding those fetuses hasn't been a terribly easy task we been in the museum, we knew of some mummies being moved up to the Citadel, we've checked out uh, catalogs and with the directors of conservation. So one of the things we have to do is simply go around looking to see if in fact these things are available.
1: Some mummies have been sent in the past for examination at the Cairo Medical School, and Wilfred Griggs decided to look there next. Professor of anatomy is Faisi Gavala. In a locked room, Doctor Dibala stores the remains of the many bodies which archaeologists have sent by.
2: We, this is uh, most of the collection in
11: the Latin department. These are ancient bones,
1: oh. they includes
11: uh, the period from pre-Dynastic times till Greek, Roman, and Coptic Scopists. Follow your <laughs>
6: Busy Heart flavor for every vibe.
11: And these are uh, the
1: two uh,
11: boxes. Oh, these are the boxes here.
1: This is incredible. Okay, and amongst the these one. boxes uh, were the fetuses, oh, okay, the others, still yeah. stored as Howard Carter packed them 80 years ago.
11: This is a box with a small fetus.
1: Wilfred Griggs' search was over.
11: It's About uh, five months' age. And uh, as you see, this is the original cotton.
7: the condition is remarkable. The hands are in remarkably fine conditions still.
11: Yes, even the, this kind is, is, is still, still, still You the can hand still see the hands, all yes. of the fingers. Yes, and you can see also the uh, material, the embalming material, mm. and this uh, skin of the abdomen. Mm-hmm. It was meant to see the next ritus, which is the bigger one. Okay. The same from the tomb of the And now the hitus is... What no, you, you see is bigger one, much, much. One, much no, all, right? yes, the bigger developed is not it? Yes, it's a bigger one. one. Mm-hmm. So this is a female baby. Mm-hmm. it is about uh, seven months. You can see even mm-hmm. here the, oh, the vertebrae, the vertebrae, oh, oh, the vertebrae. Wow. and you see the clavicle. Oh, so this the is the clavicle, clavicle, right? And here is the chin, and the mouse is completely right, mm-hmm. The nose is okay. You see the nose. Neither
1: fetus showed any sign of a skeletal abnormality. But there was a strong clue as to who they were.
11: You can see the incision, which was done in the left flange mm-hmm. so that they can go and fill the abdomen with the bonding
7: material. Now, when you, when you observe this kind of uh, mummification process, and feet are so small as this, uh, surely this would
11: argue for this being a very important, even a royal barrel, you would think. Absolutely. To embalm such a small fetuses, it is a sure sign that these were very important fetuses, royal fetuses, to Tutankhamun and his
7: family. I guess the question is, could we could we look at it more carefully, you and I, and see if the, a sample would be appropriate to take? Finding these two fetuses, after looking around and wondering where they were, finally we will be able to determine genetically where these fit in the 18th dynasty. That is going to be a remarkable opportunity. Very, very remarkable. Unbelievable.
1: After weeks of searching, yeah. Wilfred Griggs had found what did appear to be the children of Tutankhamun. Okay, he was allowed to take the minute bone oh, samples needed to test their DNA. Back in America, at their university in Provo, Utah, the process of extracting the DNA from the fetus samples would take several months. By amplifying any DNA in the samples many millions of times, Scott Woodward would be looking for their DNA fingerprints, the DNA sequences which may match those he'd seen in other oils to confirm that the fetuses were indeed Tutankhamun's children. And he'd be looking closely for the genes which might indicate syndromes like MARFAX or an inherited metabolic disorder. But whilst the search for the fetal DNA was... There was another strong lead they could follow in their attempts to understand what may have brought about the end of the dynasty, the mystery body in the Cairo Museum. The body was found a few years before Tutankhamun, in the Valley of the Kings, in a tomb known as KB 55. Amongst the wreckage in a tomb which later generations clearly sought to destroy was a solitary coffin. The pearls of the coffin showed it belonged to a member of the Amana royal family. And when it was found, it was thought to be Akhenaten's mother, Queen T. But on the coffin, all means of identification had been removed. The face of the other, the cartouches with the name, had all been hacked away. And after examining the completely decayed mummy inside, Anatomists suggested that the body was not of a woman at all, but a man. So who was it? If he could be identified, it might provide some direct evidence about the end of the dynasty. Some people had suggested it might be Smenkari, a little-known pharaoh who apparently ruled for a few years alongside Akhenaten and before Tutankhamun. But whoever the shadowy figure was, he must have been a close relation of Tutankhamun's. Jim Harris had found that the skull from the body in KV-55 was almost identical to Tutankhamun's skull.
6: There's a number of ways you can show this. One is you can show them using uh, computerized tracings uh, o- or overlays showing how, how very similar uh, the maxilla, the mandible, uh, and the cranial base are in fact of all the classes. Uh, they are perhaps most similar. The, the morphological contour, the shape of the skull and face, are very, very similar to uh, the and the skull from 255. So my conclusion is that they are, of to be relatives. Therefore, um, they would be uh, possibly a father or a son or a brother. We have no reason to believe it. The that Tutankhamun had a son, so the assumption must be that a father or a brother.
1: So was the mystery pharaoh Smenkare an older brother of Tutankhamun? Many people doubt Smenkare existed, or that Tutankhamun had an older brother. But if the pharaoh found in tomb kv 55 was either Tutankhamun's brother or father, then could the body in fact be his father, Akhenaten himself? 18th dynasty specialist Nicholas Reeves thinks the evidence that it is Akhenaten is compelling.
9: If you look at the layout of the tomb to begin with, this layout um, is exactly parallel to the royal tomb at a mall and Queen T was buried on this side and himself was buried on that side You look more closely at the inscriptions on the coffin. and although the cartouche is inscribed the epithets which survive, describe it are epithets used only by Akhenaten not, so far as we know, by any epithets. So, Two possible pieces of evidence of my claim, body, back However, we've got more evidence than that because scattered around the body.
4: Have you lost Medicaid or Chip? At healthcare.gov, four out of five customers can find a quality plan for ten dollars or less per month with financial help. Enroll in a plan today at healthcare.gov,
9: paid for by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Before clay bricks, at least two of which were inscribed with the name, the Osiris King nefekepru while the pre of Akhenaten. <coughs> from an archaeologist's point of view, this body can belong only to one person, and that was
1: Was the body from tomb KV55 none other than the heretic pharaoh Akhenaten? Or was it after all an older brother of Tutankhamun who ruled briefly as the pharaoh Menkari? If this was Akhenaten, then questions about the pharaohs' inherited his could be answered directly. The museum believed that for the first time in many years, the body could be examined to try to identify and help resolve a puzzle at the end of the 18th century. To determine who it was and perhaps identify a disease which may have brought the 18th dynasty to an end. Joyce Fila, one of the UK's leading physical anthropologists, was invited to take another look at the body. Who was this pharaoh from the 18th dynasty? Whose scuff such a strong resemblance to Tutankhamun's that he was likely to be either his father or his brother?
2: This is here
1: on and
10: are very close, it was maybe percent. Mm-hmm. Very elegant, long sort of shape, yes. it was in both
1: skulls. The man who pointed out, the two were closely related, Jim Harris, had taken part in the last detailed study of the mystery body ten years before. Everything depended on his age and death. If he was Tutankhamun's father, Akhenaten, he would have been about 35 when he died, having completed Egypt's greatest revolution. If he died before his early 20s, he was young enough to be Tutankhamun's brother. And our conclusion was, after, after doing quite uh, a, a, a,
6: a robot study of the entire skeleton, using a number of different indexes that
1: uh, he was approximately uh, between the ages of 30 and 35 when died. Jim Harris' conclusion had supported the belief of a greater number of people. This was the... becoming father, the Still,
0: The
1: sense of forensic pathology has moved on. Josh Filer's main task was now to redetermine that all-important age of death. If Jim Harris's group were right, and this was a man in his thirties, then the evidence that it was up an oven would be overwhelming. But first she wanted to check it really was a man, and if there were any of the telltale signs of Marfax or some other disease.
10: This is quite a small area. This is a very male angle, clearly male. Would you agree?
0: Mm, I agree with it's this. A yeah.
10: male. There is no sign of um, disease as such, and it's quite clear that this... So it actually normal. Normal, it was yeah.
1: normal, Joyce Feiler is an acknowledged expert in bodies from different parts of North Africa. And once she concluded this was a man, and that he appeared completely normal, um, she very soon had doubts about the age.
10: Um, this is only fairly recently erupted. If this had been erupted for quite a few years, you would expect an awful lot of her on that tooth, uh, a medium amount of that tooth, and very little on that but we can't nowhere, and um, it is pointing to a younger person. I would say even early twenties at the moment, but as you know, Nasreen, we have to look at the whole skeleton yeah. and all the different biological features. Yeah. So have a look at chromoid phasing. Um, now it's interesting that we can see here uh, on the end of the bone, can you see this line here? Anterior is, absolutely. Again, this is a suggestion of the end of the bone fusing on to the, to the main shaft of the bone. Again, I'm, I'm viewing towards um, between 20 and 25. Possibly, certainly by the teeth, I would even go sort of younger than that.
1: As people age, their cartilage hardens and fuses to the bone. The external and internal signs of this position are critical to determining the age of death. And it does tend kind to of confirm
10: what I suspected before. On the outside of the um, pelvis here, there was a suggestion on the external or outside part of the bone mm. that the bone was just fusing. And the X ray shows quite clearly on the internal structure here. Mm-hmm. You can actually see a slight line, Um, and it seems to match with the fusion that we have on the novels. They fuse between something between 18 and 25. So this is fused, but it hasn't quite obliterated. You can see internally. So again, I think it points to somebody Mm -hmm. perhaps no more than mid-twenties. And my Italian.
1: Joyce Filey's unambiguous conclusion that this was a young man meant that it couldn't be Akhenaten. Combined with the other evidence, it suggested that Tutankhamun did, after all, have an older brother, and that ruling alongside his father Akhenaten, he was briefly the pharaoh's Menkile. <coughs> The suggestion is that Smenkare died before his father, and it was his early death which made Tutankhamun the heir to the Egyptian throne. Akhenaten himself remained an enigma. But now it had been shown that his son Smenkare was apparently normal, and that he in turn was just like his brother Tutankhamun, it became less likely that Akhenaten had a dominant genetic abnormality like Marfax. But other recessive genetic syndromes, such as metabolic disorders, remained a possibility. And conclusions about the end of the dynasty would have to come from the genes. And in Utah, they were beginning to get answers. The fetuses from Tutankhamun's tomb had started to yield their secrets. So far, there were only glimpses of DNA from the small fetus but the older one had yielded a whole sequence, not yet nucleic DNA, which might identify the father, but mitochondrial DNA, passed down through the maternal.
11: The DNA that we have from the fetus should be the DNA sequence of Atkinson-Pahad, is the mother of the fetus, if in fact this is the, the child of Tutankhamun and atkinson That DNA sequence would have derived then from necrotis. So by having the DNA sequence from fetus, we've now also
1: been able to reconstruct the DNA sequence of Nefertiti. So in this first glimpse of the DNA from Theta immediate family, they were probably looking at the genes of Nefertiti itself, and seeing no sign of any genetic disease. But they'll keep searching, and they're confident that in time the fetuses will yield a lot more information. We're not
7: finished. With enough tweaking of the reagents enough working with the samples, I'm confident that the uh, answers are still there for us. I don't. I don't think we have to say we didn't get them. Give up. I think we have to say we have some answers, and the chances are pretty good we're going to get more.
1: As the results came in from the dynasty as a whole, they revealed a series of definite answers about relationships in the family, about their inbreeding, and about the likelihood of disease. The dynasty they confirmed began as it ended, with a brother and sister. But after team worked their way through the royal family, they were able to chart a family tree. And it became apparent that this was not a pattern that continued throughout.
11: Probably some of the biggest information that we have from the DNA analysis is the confirmation of a brother-sister marriage, the beginning of the dynasty, and then a break the genetic information at the beginning of the dynasty and the middle of the dynasty, there around Amenhotep the first and Tutmosis the first, which may imply a different set of genetics, possibly a different family. <laughs>
0: Electrolyte instant hydration.
1: Scott's first conclusion was that far from being inbred throughout, the 18th dynasty was in fact two different families, and it emerged from minute changes in the DNA.
11: This is an example of a difference in the DNA sequence that allows us to make uh, the statement that we have a break between the beginning of the 18th dynasty and the middle part of the 18th dynasty. Um, here we have an Amenhotep I, a C, and a C that follows right on top of it. Now, as we look at toothmosis the I, over here, we'll see a C, and there's there's nothing on top of it, but it, in fact it moves over, and it's a T. So we have a C T in to First, whereas in Amin-Hotep the I, we had a C followed by another C. Uh, that's all that it takes to demonstrate
1: that these do not belong to the same internal the line. And as Scott looked more closely at the DNA sequences, clarifying exactly who was who, he was able to discover specific. In place of
11: sisters. So if there is inbreeding at the top of the dynasty, but as we move down to the next generation, it seems to be essentially erased because we have new genetics coming in through the mother. Then we have other places in the dynasty uh, uh, down near the end of the dynasty near the moon where it looks like there is inbreeding again. Um, and so it goes from an inbreeding situation. To a resetting of the cloth to another inbreeding situation as we move through the dynasty. And so we don't have an absolute inbreeding situation going on all the way down through the dynasty.
1: At specific times in the dynasty, brothers had married their sisters, including that final pairing of Tutu and his half sister. But there was always fresh blood coming into the family, and with such low levels of inbreeding, Recessive conditions of like metabolic disorders would be unlikely to lead to the premature death of both their children. With the first results now coming in, that the had followed the samples from the royal mummies and come to Utah to see and hear for himself about conclusions which are providing a completely novel view of the 18th dynasty. How the
11: second is often considered to be the end of the 17th dynasty, cruise the first is beginning of the two dynasty. I think DNA the shows these are probably father and son, therefore I would argue that they go under the same. Now
8: you can complete this this part of the way or this side coming out. And I see, This point may be very useful to give us ideas about uh, the humanity from three thousands of years. something for
11: the very okay. We now have the beginnings of... This. Some DNA evidence from the 18th dynasty. Combined with all of the historical information that's come to life in the last 100 years, um, and all of the other reconstructions of what went on in the 18th dynasty, I think the DNA has a whole new life, a whole new angle being able to understand who these people were, how they were related to each other, and how they interacted from, from day to day. here
1: why the children of tutankhamun and his young wife were still born remains a mystery for the young royals and for the dynasty it was a tragedy but it was probably not caused by genetic disorder but the fact that they had no surviving offspring changed the course of history when tutankhamun died still it seemed with no other wives the dynasty effectively came to an end the children of Tutankhamun lived. The common soldier, Ramses I, at the time that his military dynasty founded, Marcel Rupert. Artistically, it was the end of a golden age. Now, after three and a half thousand years, the story of the 18th dynasty is re-emerging from the sand. Through their DNA, this extraordinary building is in a sense being brought back to life. The pyramids at Giza were, until the 20th century, the largest structures in the world. years they've aroused awe and speculation in all who have seen them. How were they built and who built them? There have been many extraordinary theories. But now, for the first time, Archaeologists are able to give clear answers to these questions. <laughs> Discoveries made in the shadow of the pyramids are overturning many long-held beliefs and rewriting the history of ancient Egypt. The people who built the pyramids now been found and reveal an astonishing insight into an ancient past
9: what we've been doing so far is opening small windows onto this ancient reality it's this information that brings the people back to life that allows us to reconstruct their life this is the history when we write
8: about this in the history and as good book, it would be the most important thought in this book.
1: The three pyramids at Giza represent the peak of the pyramid-building art in ancient Egypt all were constructed in the middle of the third millennium bc over the lifetimes of just three kings Khufu's pyramid the great pyramid is the largest and was the first to be built the other two were built by his son Khafre and his son Menkaure. although it's still vast Menkari's pyramid is the smallest But it was to be the last pyramid built on the Giza plateau. Such an awesome feat would never be attempted again. And how the pharaohs succeeded in building their massive pyramid tombs has remained a mystery to this day. most of what we know about ancient Egypt is based on what has been found in the tombs and temples of the pharaohs and the nobles who served under them. Even rituals have been recorded, like this foundation ceremony, marking the spot where a pyramid would be built. The people who then built the pyramids themselves and the secrets of how they did it have been lost to mystery. Until recently, all excavations have produced no sign of who these people were, and as a result, our most enduring beliefs about the pyramid builders come from ancient hearsay. It's long been a common belief that the pyramids were built by slaves. That's what the Greek historian Herodotus claimed when he visited Egypt 2,000 years after the pyramids had been completed. And it's a view that has persisted right through to Hollywood. But that belief was to be shattered by a series of extraordinary discoveries which began 10 years ago. Nazlet-El-Saman, a small suburb of Cairo, was the unexpected site of one of the most important finds in Egyptology of the last hundred years. In 1990, a mechanical digger being used in construction work on the edge of the town is a large block buried in the sand. The construction stopped and archaeologists moved in. The block unearthed by the digger turned out to be the wall of a large building. As they dug through hundreds of tons of sand, a team of archaeologists began uncovering signs of a vast settlement dating from 2,500 years before Christ. stretched for half a square mile, but there were signs of it extending much, much further. Could this be where the people who built the pyramids had lived, what's been called the lost city of the pyramids? The team was led by Egyptologist Mark Lehner.
9: We have some things here that look like workers' houses, but most of what we're finding is looks, looks as though it's geared towards production. Uh, One of the first things we found were intact bakeries. They made bread in these enormously large pots. These could be massive things, sometimes weighing up to 25 kilograms. Big, thick pots. They have these ledges, they look like bells when they're upside down. Each one of these pots is kind of like a portable baking
1: machine hundreds of bread moulds and many baking pits was evidence of food production on a vast scale. It was the first clue that they might be getting close to the pyramid builders themselves. Then one day, a chance discovery was made in the dunes just above the site of the town by the chief archeologist of the Giza plateau, Zahi Hawass.
8: The chief of the guards came to me and he said, Sir, a lady was riding the horse. And the legs of the horse felt down, and it showed a small mud brick wall. I came here, I looked at this piece of mud brick, I said, That's it. This is the tomb of the pyramid building.
1: Archaeologists have so far discovered over 600 tombs, positioned on two levels. At the lower level, there are a large number of simple tombs, and raised above them a collection of more ornate and better built tombs. There were no mummies inside, just bones buried with simple items, tools and pots.
8: Day, we discovered a tomb, or a statue, or a skeleton, or a piece of pottery. When we excavate here, we were very lucky because thieves in antiquity were not interested in the cemetery because there is no gold, and that's why they left every tomb intact.
2: The watch in Moscow always keeps the meal.
8: Really, so good, I drink it, really, really.
1: Not only were they intact, but the tombs of some individuals bore inscriptions which related to working at the pyramids. Inscriptions that confirmed the picture that had already started to emerge from the excavations below.
8: They believed that this man was in charge of the bakery that Martina found uh, down here. And if you look here, you have a very unique scene. These people are making it. And now, some scenes here back in your the place.
1: There could be no doubt as to who these people were. These were indeed the tombs of the pyramid builders, overseers, workers. Tombs of people who ran the food facilities, there were tombs that seemed to belong to people in much more
0: important
1: Inscriptions showed that they organized different parts of the pyramid construction or were chief workmen.
8: We have a title of some who that this was the overseer of the west side of the pyramid. Titles such sculptors, artists, uh, inspector of building tombs, director of building tombs. All of this
1: confirmed
8: the thought were the Westman and the atmosphere of the city.
1: Taken together, the details emerging from the tombs and the evidence of food production began to suggest a larger picture. The archaeologists now knew That this was a site where many hundreds perhaps thousands of people had lived and worked constructing the pyramids but who were these people then came the first evidence which threw into doubt the generally accepted theory that they were slaves the evidence came from the food production areas down in the pyramid town. In a lab by the pyramids, archaeologists have collected thousands of bone fragments, the remains of preparing or eating food.